So let's let's set the stage here. I'm here with Keenan. You have to get his book, Gap <laughs> Selling. Just look it up on Amazon, Audible. I listened to it on Audible. We do have a physical copy at home as well. Just a really good book. And the way you read it, man, like, oh my gosh, for the Audible performance, it was like stellar. So to hear you, you with me here today, hear that same voice, I, I love to hear it. I love when an author reads um, his own book, I think, and, and when they're a good performer. Some of them aren't good performers and it just doesn't work mm-hmm. out, but mm-hmm. you had a very good performance. So Gap Selling by well, Keenan, you. If, you, if you do sales, like you have to read that book or you're not serious about being the best salesperson you could possibly be. Thank, well, I, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you like it. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, what is your last name, dude? I've seen you on LinkedIn for years. We've been connected for a long time. Mm-hmm. Not that we've had any interact, prior interactions there, but mm-hmm. do you share your last name? Keenan is my last name. Oh, and? That's all you need to know. <laughs> I respect it. I respect oh. it. I had to ask, though, you know? It's not, look, it's not hard to find. It's like, I, I didn't go into my past and scrub everything out. And I didn't make it my legal name so that I can fight people when they want to use it. You know what I'm saying? Like, sure. you know, I mean, so, so it's not like it's hard to find, but I, I, I on purpose just don't, you know, share it. Cause then it just makes it harder. But it's also great when someone reaches out to me to sell me and they say, you know, Hey, you know, by my first name, I'm like, yeah, you don't know me. You, 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 it's the, yeah, you're done. Like you have no idea who I am. And so it tells me all I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> if you can see, I've got a lot of notes on my phone. Beautiful. Uh, I'm okay. very excited about this. So I, we're going to kind of go into like three parts today. I want to learn more about your personal journey. And then I want to, we're going to pivot to like sales tactics some follow-up questions from the book. And then we're going to go into like sales org, rev org, sales leadership type mm-hmm. questions, which okay. I think will be really helpful for some people as well, running larger agencies okay. listening to this. So let's, without further ado, let's get into your personal journey. I had my first question here is, how did you get good at sales? Whoa. I think the short answer is like some people are born with a proclivity to play an instrument. Some people are born with a proclivity to play sports. Some people are born as with a proclivity to with math. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think we're all born with, with some type of proclivity or some type of skill or talent that lends itself well to something. So for sure, mine was sales. I mean, I, I, I had always been influencing people my whole life, even as a little kid. It's, if I wanted to play, you know, maybe call it narcissism or selfishness, but if I wanted to play a particular game, I had to convince kids to play that game because I didn't want to play the other game. You know what I'm saying? So I just think I was naturally good at it. I remember my aunt used to say, oh, you're a born salesman. This is back in the 80s, right? So when I got into it, it just came really easy. Now, getting good like anything else was a commitment to trial and error. Like, you know, you could be a natural basketball player, but you still got to fucking practice. You still got to do drills. You, you know what I'm saying? So I think like anybody else, I, I was lucky enough to find something I was good at. And then I, and that I liked, so I was good at it. I liked it. And then I was committed to practicing and getting better. You always been a smooth talker. It sounds like. Well, so yes, I, I have a gift. Yeah. I, I look, I have a gift 
of communication, no question. But I, I, I only think that is part of the reason I was a good salesperson. The other part is my ability to process information quickly. And I have an extremely high EQ, off the charts EQ. I can see things in people that they don't even recognize themselves right away. And so that, that I think I was, it was subconscious for years and even to a certain degree, it's subconscious, but it's more conscious now. So I, by just watching someone or hearing their tone or hearing words they say three or four times, I pick up on shit. I'm like, oh, 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 oh. And then I can ask questions that direction. Or I can press that button or I can tweak, you know what I'm saying? So massively high EQ. So it's less how well I talk and more how well I can read and assess and, and engage with people. Yeah, all the information is there. It's not always about what people are saying at face value, but and this might sound basic to you, but how they're saying it can give you a lot of information if you're listening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 100%. Did you ever like on your sales journey, I, I think based off of the answer to my first question, it's probably a no, but did you ever doubt yourself in terms of your sales ability at any point in your no. career? No, no. <laughs> I would doubt my ability to sell a certain thing or I'd be in a position and like, this isn't going well. So yeah, there were times I wasn't selling well, or I had a hard time selling something. And, and so I think I got better at selling because of those instances or because of those failures or because of those environments, but I never questioned my ability to sell, even if I wasn't doing well in a particular job or space. Mm, I got you. So when something wasn't going well, you were trying to sell something that wasn't going well, you just kind of, you wouldn't. You didn't talk bad about yourself internally, mm -mm. like, oh, I don't know if I can sell it. Maybe it's just the product or service, or or what am I doing wrong? Like, what am I missing here? Mm. You know, what mm. am I missing here? What am I not doing? What do I need to change? You know, etc. So it was never. I can't do it. It was just. Dang. What I'm, I'm not doing something right. Dang. Way more productive self talk. I'm kind of judging myself that I went to like blaming the product or service as the first thing that came to my mind instead of like, oh, how can I actually get better and start selling this product or service? That's way more productive self-talk. Oh, 100%. 100%. You, that's, that's how I think in most things. I, I don't have a whole lot of negative self-talk, right? I, I just It's just not who I am. I think if, if any areas there would be self-talk, I just don't go there. Wait, it'd be negative self-talk. So I, I guess even I'm going to go math. I'm going to go for stretch. If all of a sudden I, someone told me I had to fucking become an engineer and do all the math to build a bridge, you probably some self-talk would creep in there because I'm not good at math. Right. And, and I'll study and I'll work my ass off, but I'm just like, I'm, it's just, it's it, at some point in time, the work effort to get good at doing that job will far outweigh the return of what I'm, you know, of, of what I'm learning and getting. And that's where my self-talk comes in. And I think it should for anybody, actually. If you're not good at something, just naturally, and the amount of work it puts in is way, way more than the return you get at a base. Not when you're an expert at something. Like when you're a professional at something, that's what happens. But if you're at the early stages or the low-level stages of shit, and you have to put in massive amounts of work just to understand algebra, you know what I'm saying? Which means to understand calculus is it's going to take hours and hours a day. No, don't self-talk. I don't, I'm not good at it. Get the fuck away. Right? Sure. Don't spend time in things that you're not good at and you'll never be good at because that's where self-talk comes from. Ne sorry, self-negative talk. You know what I'm saying? Negative self-talk, mm -hmm. I should say. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is like any room 
for negative self-talk when you're trying to build yourself into the best salesperson you could possibly be. Even let's, let's play devil's advocate here. Like what if you're, I mean, maybe the lines are blurred here, but like you're being critical of, of yourself and some things that you said on a call, like, I mean, yeah, you that's can be critique of those things. Yeah, that that's yeah, critique. your behaviors. Yeah, mm. yeah, you can okay. you can critique yourself all fucking day long, right? Mm. <clears throat> what the hell? Like when I I critique myself more when I ski. I love skiing, and I, I'm still learning, and I still I still take lessons or go to camps is a better word. I go to camps and and constantly constantly trying to get better. And if you saw me ski, you'd be like, "Why are you going to a camp?" I mean, I can ski, but I want to get better. Like every day, I want to get better, 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 better. So. When I ski and I mess up a line, I'm a mogul skier. So I mess up a line or I make a bad turn. I'm like, fuck it. Or I have a bad day. I'm like, fuck Keenan, you suck. God damn it. Get you. So I'll yell at myself. But at no time does that ever undermine my confidence and sense of, am I a good skier? Can I get there? It's never, never does it touch that level. It's just always at the, at the surface level, in the behavior, in the, in the moment actions <clears throat> that I'll yell no at self, myself. Or, yeah. No self-pity mm-hmm. there. None, none, no, no lack of, of belief in myself. Mm. Never. Did you have a mentor at all? No, no, no. I've had people who supported me and for short stints or if I needed something, I could call them, but there aren't many of them, but no, there was no one who, who, no, no. And I think there need to be more of them. I, I just don't think they put in the time. They, they, uh, you know, I've reached out to people throughout my career for quote unquote mentors and they just, they're just not, they're not there enough. <clears throat> so they, I think what they think is you come to them all the time. They don't check in. Or if you do call them, they usually give you some high level superfluous advice to be a true mentor. You got to be committed. You, you got to lean into somebody. So someone asked nine out of 10 times, someone asked me to be a mentor. The answer is no, not because I don't want to, but because a mentor just isn't a word you're invested in that person. Right, you're invested, and if you're not willing to be invested, then you can't be a mentor. <clears throat> mm. That's a huge time commitment, too. Mm-hmm. Now, there's people who've been inf- who have influenced me. I'm sure there's people I might I can't say I I saw them as a mentor. I can't even no no no. Just people have influenced me that been there that I that I was like knew if I could call them they would take my call. That was the biggest one to me. I met some fairly successful people back in the day, and just knowing that if I called them and they'd answer the phone and answer my question. That was good enough for me, but no one who actually actively mentored me. Respect that you've kind of forged your own path without depending on others for. If you depend on others, you're fucked. Yeah. Like literally, I don't know. Internal, your self, your voice, your internal monologue, like, like you need, you need to rely on your own gut intuition or else you're going to lose it. Yes. And be dependent on others forever. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, you can. No, I didn't do it alone. Don't get me wrong. Like there were people who either invested in my companies that failed. There were people, like I said, who I could call and they'd answer questions. It'd be people who would just be provide emotional support. There'd be people who would introduce me to people. There were people who, you know, who, you know, my parents or my grandparents or, you know, there's people who did things, right, that helped me. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't confuse help with mentorship. Nobody does it by themselves. And if you have much that much of a fucking asshole that you believe you did it all yourself, you're a douche. Nobody did it all themselves. Nobody. 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 
Totally. And so anybody who thinks they're self-mingle, fuck themselves. Right. I'm tired of this shit. People say, you know, when I remember not to get too political, but Obama said, you didn't build that business. You didn't build the roads. You didn't do this. And they got all mad and all those people lost this shit on the service. He was right. He was right. Right. The mere fact that I was born in the United States and I don't have to worry about my power being turned off. I don't have to worry about shitty roads. I don't have to worry about, you know, 70 percent taxes. I don't have to worry about there's VCs all over the place. If I want to raise money like like oh, I didn't have anything to do with any of that. And that makes it easier totally. for me to start a business. I still got to do a lot of work. Here's a good example. I say this all the time. There would be no gap selling and there would be no Keenan if I was born 15 years earlier. Because the way my mind works and the way I do things, I'm, I, I would not have figured out how to, plus my personality, I wouldn't have figured out how to write the book and then build, build a following and get a, a publisher to publish it for me. I wouldn't have been able to do that. Okay. No, one I would have been able to get the capital to start this business, but because I was born when I was, was, and I was able to start blogging in 2009 because that blogging got me an audience. And because of that blogging, it helped me create, solidify my ideas because I was able to solidify my ideas. I was able to start to see a, 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 a framework or method that became gap selling. And so because of that, I was able to write the book, but already had a following. Do you see what I'm saying? All of that came from an infrastructure in an environment that, that had I been no born 10 years, over. no control over whatsoever. So I took advantage of it, but to think I did the shit by myself. Now I'm not that fucking obnoxious. Like, no, like a lot of things in the world had to happen for me to be successful. And I had to do the, I had to work hard too, but I just can't You see you pressed a button. I can't fucking stand people who think they did it themselves. You didn't. You worked hard and you could have been the main core engine, but no, so many things around you had to happen. So many people had to support you. No, you didn't do it alone. So stop being an asshole. Nice water, by the way. Thanks. Liquid death. Yeah. I and like our it. Sponsor of this podcast. I'm kidding. Yeah. They are now. Go into a fake commercial. <laughs> no, I, I've been on liquid death for like, I started putting people onto it like four years ago. It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's good water. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah, it resonated with some things you said there, like realized over the past four months, four or five months at this point, it just kind of hit me for the first time in my life, my young life, that how lucky I am to have been born in the United States. Having mm-hmm. this year, I haven't been in the United States at all. I've been traveling half the time. It's been in third world countries. And you, you just realize it. <laughs> when you live in different countries, you do realize mm-hmm the incredible opportunity of being born in the United States. Yeah. So resonate, man. What about let's, I have a set, this is a setup. So I have a follow-up question to this. So just like 30 seconds or less elevator pitch of the concept of gap selling. Go. It teaches, it teaches salespeople how to sell by managing change, not managing the transaction. Hmm. So like, what's the gap? The gap is the space between where someone is today, the current state, and where they want to be or go tomorrow, the future state. And the space in between that, that gap, is is the value of the deal. That's the value. The bigger the gap, the more they're willing to pay. The smaller the gap, the less they're willing to pay. So you got to understand what the gap is. But surrounding all of that is change. Is it worth changing from where I am now to where I want to go tomorrow or whatever? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an equation. Yep. The delta. So how did you discover, how did you become conscious? You're probably doing this already, 
you know, you were kind of selling by using this method already, but when did you start to become conscious of it? Sometime in probably 2000 conscious, probably in, fuck, I don't know, 2014, 13, 12. I'm not exactly sure when. What I recall is I was at a client and I kept, I was doing a deal review or something and I kept asking this, this salesperson why someone needed to buy and he couldn't, he just kept giving me dumb they need, they need, they want, they want. And I'm like, no, no, that's not why. And I remember getting up on the board and saying, look, someone is here today. And I just said, right, so they're doing this, this, this today. And if they buy our product, they're going to be here tomorrow. Okay, so the, the space in between there is what's important to them. What aren't they able to do today that they want to do tomorrow? And why does that matter? And blah, blah, blah. And I just scribbled it all on there. And I sat down. I'm like, oh, yay, that's good. That makes sense to me. Right. That's good. So that's roughly where I came up with the idea. It probably wasn't for several years later until I actually, you know, started to sit down and really craft it out. So like what made you come to the conclusion that this was the main thing to write a whole book about? I don't think that was the question I asked. I think the question I asked was how do I get more exposure for my consulting company at the time? And how do I create a training company out of it? Because I felt training was a more lucrative and more scalable business. Consulting's hard to scale, in my opinion. So agreed. So I yeah. So I said, all right. Well, I I think a book would be good, but I got I better have a book that has a good subject. So I sat down and said, okay, do I have enough to write a book that people would read that then would drive business and awareness to at the time, my company was called a sales guy, but a sales guy consulting, but then we changed it to a sales growth company. Does it provide enough value? So it wasn't, oh, this is so good. I need to write a book. It was the other way around. I really need to write a book if I'm going to increase the val- awareness of my company. How do I, do I have a book here? And I went and looked at all my shit and I was like, oh yeah, I think I do. Yeah. And how did you like achieve success? Like mass market, not mass market maybe, but like relative success with your book because a lot of people write really good books, Keenan, but like it's hard to get people to read their book. A lot of books, they just go unread. Like did you, what kind of plan did you have there? Was it a lot of word of mouth? Was it, was it some marketing effort? Like what did you do and how did this get traction? So I think there's two answers to this. The, the first one is I'm going to challenge you. I don't think it's the norm that a lot of people write good books and they just don't get read. Mm. They don't get read because they're not good books. Mm. And look, I know the writer likes them and, and I'm not trying to be a jerk. And, and to be perfectly, perfectly frank, I never expected the book to do this well. Let's keep it real. Okay. As loud as I am and as brash as I am and as confident as I appear, I'm a little more humble than people who don't know me realize. I never, I, I thought if we could sell 10, 15,000 books max, like that would be golden. You know what I'm saying? And then we, I, I envisioned literally after the first three or four months when the buzz died, I literally remember thinking I'll probably end up just passing them out, you know what I'm saying? Or sending them to people mm. or whatever. Never expected this ever. So, so the first piece is no, there aren't many books that are really well written that go unread. Now, of course, there are always exceptions to the rule like that, like that dude from TikTok. Did you, did you see that? No. Oh, it was dope. I didn't go too deep into it. But this this dude wrote a book like 15 years ago or had been writing a book for 15 years and had been on the on published like three or four years ago and nobody was reading it. Nobody was reading it. 
And then his daughter did a TikTok with him. I don't know if he was writing it or doing something. And she said, you know, my dad is working on his book or I don't know, some, created some correlation to the book and said, my, I think he said, my dad wrote a book and it took him 15 years and he just published it and nobody's reading it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm so proud of him. And, and it catapulted to Amazon number one book. Her one, her one thing. So people started buying it. I guess it's really good. It's fiction. I don't read a lot of fiction, so no. I didn't read it. But so yes, my point is that there are exceptions to that rule, right? That good books are missed. But generally speaking, most books get read. People don't like them, or they're not that impressed when they don't go anywhere. So I think I got lucky that it was a good book. And secondly, though, our launch strategy was pretty simple. I think it was pretty smart, but it's pretty simple. The launch strategy was before the I kept telling everybody the book is coming out. Now, remember, I had been blogging for years, so I had some bit of a following. Like, this is all steps. This isn't like try to create shit overnight. I've been blogging for almost 10 years, mm. and I had a following, and I'd already had a consulting mm. business. So people knew me in the space of sales. So I had that. So then when I was telling people, I got a book coming out, I got a book coming out, I got a book coming out, right before it came out, I said, okay, everybody... The first 25 people who respond to this LinkedIn thing, I will send a free copy, a free PDF copy of the book. And yeah, I'll send you a free PDF, free, free PDF copy of the book. And what, all you have to do is agree to read it and then do a LinkedIn review. I don't care if it's a bad or good one. You just have to do a LinkedIn review. That's all you have to do. So when the first time I did that, it took like 10 or 15 minutes for 25. And then I created a landing page. And it was funny. On the landing page, it said, I agree, not download. It's, I said, I will read it in two weeks. I'll do a LinkedIn post. I won't share it with anybody. I, you know, I won't share the PDF with anybody, blah, blah, blah. This is I agree. If they agreed, they got the book. So then we got everybody's names and all that stuff. And so the first time I did it, it took like 10 minutes, 15 minutes for the 25 people, right? Then... Two weeks later, the reviews came out. Just average. I don't know who these people were. They were just randoms, and they everybody liked it. And they talked about it. So then I was like, "Well, let's try that again." So I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Week, two weeks later, tried it again. First twenty-five people, boom. Took about three minutes. Now gone. So then those people all wrote their reviews, and it was really, really good reviews. I'm like, "Ooh, this is kind of working." So then I did it again, and we didn't have controls on it, and it had 55 people in the first like 45 seconds. Like I, we, we couldn't even shut it down fast enough. So we did again. And those people wrote a review and then the book launched and everybody had already been talking about it. And the book was good enough yeah. that people liked it. So that's how we did it. Generated massive amount of buzz. Yeah. It's really creative. Mm -hmm. wow, I mm -hmm. like that. But remember the book had to be good. Oh, let me phrase it. People had to like the book. So that's why I got lucky. They liked the book. Totally. I appreciate that you challenged me there, and I would certainly, now that you say it, I would certainly agree with you. That if it's people aren't reading it, odds are it's just probably not that good. Probably it's not very good. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's pivot to sales now, Keenan. Ready to play ball there? Yep, ready. Cool. So, like, your book was written. What was it? Twenty nineteen, twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah, it came out like second last week of, of 2018. So yes, we'll just say 2019. Oh, okay, 2018, 2019. So obviously the book covers a lot of this, but like, what are some common mistakes that sales professionals make? Updated, expanded and revised 2023 edition. Common mistakes in general? 
what common mistakes in when they're general. trying to gap sell in general. In general. They, yeah. yeah, they, they lead with the product. That's the biggest mistake they make. They lead with the product. The biggest, yeah. there's one problem and then everything else comes is a symptom or comes from that. Okay. And the problem is they think they're selling a product and they think they're trying to manage a transaction. So everything else from that, that they have problems with is the result of that mindset and, and taking off in the sale from that mindset. So let me show you a demo. Let me tell you about these features. Let me tell you we're better than the competition. Let me tell you why you're going to love it. You know, let me, you know, let me give you a discount if you buy tomorrow or if you buy the end of the quarter, let's discount this for you or we'll throw in these additional features. Everything is around the product and the transaction. And that's not how you sell. It's how the world sells, but that's not how you sell. Dude, I did this. I did this for a period of time. I was just product feature dumping on people Mm -hmm. is what I call Mm -hmm. it. Maybe I got that from you, feature dumping. I don't know. I, it's long that? before me. No, no, okay. that was that's been out for a long time. Yeah, that's a th- now, I may have okay. said it, but I can't take credit for it. <clears throat> gotcha. So I used to do that a lot, and recently it was probably like a month, month and a half ago. No, it was only a month ago that I got on a call and guy didn't do any discovery and just like showed me every single little, little, little thing that didn't even matter. Nobody cares for. 40 minutes, mm. nothing that was relevant to me. I only wanted mm. to see one thing. I just mm. wanted to see how the phone system worked on this piece of software. Mm. We mm. didn't even cover that hardly, like for maybe 15 mm. seconds. And I even like I even said that at the beginning. Like I just I, I care about the phone system. Just dumped everything. And I was <laughs> like, my I had I had my sales rep also on the on the call with me, so I I, I I turned my camera off. I had to just literally bang my head against the wall. I had to go like oh like just feel my face, and I was like losing it. I just needed to get out of there, man. Mm-hmm. Like I, I couldn't believe I used to do that to people, and I felt that for the really hit me for like the first time, and I just couldn't believe I used to do that to people. Not maybe to that extent, but I hope mm-hmm. not. But man. That's huge. It seems common sense, but certainly was not common knowledge to, to me at a certain point and not to a lot of people. Well, if, if you think, remember what I said, if you think your job is to sell a product, it's not common sense to not do a product dump. Think about it. Our intentions drive our behaviors. So if I believe my intention is to sell a product, then my behavior is going to sell the product. If my intention, I believe, is to solve a problem, just but just by stating that right out of the gate, if I genuinely believe my intention is to solve a problem, what's the very first thing I'm going to do? Solve a problem. No. Oh, see, no, no. If my intention is to solve a problem, what's the, it, so if I try to go do that, I want you to think about going to do that. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's the very first thing you have to do if you're intending to solve a problem? What's the first oh. thing you have to do? Well, you've got to do some discovery of sorts. You've got to get your get your your grounds. You got to. You got to get a feel for the situation. Thank you. You got to understand the problem. Yeah, you got to understand the problem. Yeah. That simple. It's that simple. So if I'm trying to solve a problem, the first thing I try to do is well, I better understand the problem. If I'm trying to sell a product, that's not the first thing I'm thinking is understand the problem. My my intentions and my direction is to sell the product. So by default, until someone c- corrects me, I'm going to sell the product. Yeah. Golden. What about another? Big mistake 
that people are making. Maybe something that's <laughs> new as of the past couple years, if that's even at all possible. I know I mean, sales. Yeah, I mean, the, they're all subsets. They're all subsets of the biggest one, right? So one is in on LinkedIn asking for a, a connection, and then the minute they connect, trying to pitch to them. You know, yeah. on social, constantly trying to to talk about your product or service, right? You know, doing posts on social that says, hey, we do this and we do that. Yeah, yeah. No one cares. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, we see this all the time. Giving money. Okay. Here's one at an organizational level. Giving money away at the end of every quarter, right? Trying to get money in at the end of the quarter. And and so, therefore, you're going to discount it or give away free shit just so they'll close at the end of Q2 as if that dollar is worth less to you in Q3. I, I, sure. I, I don't Silly. get it. And look, Silly. It's ridiculous. It's it's so ridiculous. I want to be a billionaire someday, not so I have lots of money, but so I have more clout and people will listen to me and and or I have access to people so they can walk me through something. But no one, nobody, nobody has been able to. And if anybody here is a Fortune 500 CEO or Fortune 5 and analyst, Fortune 500 analyst, please call me up and explain this to me. But nobody's been able to explain to me why if I don't make my numbers in uh, or I don't make the street expectations in Q1, right? That if I turn around and I blow them out of the water in Q2, that the, not only will the stock not recover, but it could exceed what it would do, then why do I care about Q1? So the point being is if I'm discounting, I'm making up a number. 10% across the board, every end of every quarter to get business in to make that number. Why would I not take the loss in Q1? Let the fucking stock fall. I don't give a fuck. It's three months. Sorry, everybody. You can let the stock fall for three fucking months. No one's going to die. But all those deals that I didn't get on the, I'm shitty, the 31st of March, I get them all on April 2nd through April 20th. I discounted none of them. So now I have 10% more revenue. So when I get to the end of Q2, I, I exceed expectations because I didn't give away the farm for some short-term bull. I don't understand why people can't process that. I, I just can't. It's kind of like in politics, in presidential terms, right? It's short-term thinking. Yeah. Short-term thinking in politics because the term is only four years or yes. or two years or whatever. And it's even shorter in business. But I disagree because that, you can keep going. Like the, I'm, well, I don't yeah, lose yeah, my yeah. business. Sure. Yeah. It should be that way. Sure. Sure. But yes. I think a lot of people in corporate America specifically, they do, they do think in terms of those quarters and, and it's years stupid. and, it's the stock price. Yeah, it's 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 about the stock price, especially with the public company. Yes, but that's what I'm saying. You can you your stock price will be better. You're literally giving up ten. Yes. I, I, it's counterintuitive. Just, sure. You know what it's like here. Rather. Yes. Here, what it is. Why don't they treat? Why doesn't corporate America treat the quarters like they do in baseball? They take a pitch on purpose. They know it's a strike, and they take it. Because they realize by taking this strike, I get to I get to sense the ball coming in. I get to see what the pitcher is doing. Like this value in me taking this strike. Could I strike out sometimes? Yes, but I will strike out less in the long run. So why don't they take this quarter? It's like you know what I've got. I'm making this Fortune 500 small business. It's a different story. Fortune 500. I'm doing in in net new sales. Let's say I'm doing 400 million dollars. Right. I got a sales team that's got 40 to 50 million of that. 
sitting coming up to the very end of the quarter and I'm running around pushing everybody to give discounts on that 40 to 50 million. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I got, yeah, I could have them give discounts on that 40 to $50 million or even more just to get it in that quarter. So I make them, how about give that quarter away and come back next quarter and have that 40 and 50 million plus an additional five to $7 million. Fucking seems like logic to me. Makes sense. Yeah. My name is, we're off topic. Sorry, dog. Short-term thinking, common mistake. <laughs> Fucking clowns. <clears throat> Long-term thinking. That's a double. Yes. Yes. Moving on, this is a super tactical question. I was curious about something that I've been that that I've been going back and forth with. My sales I have one sales rep right now in my organization. We've been going back and forth on this issue of personalizing voicemails versus a voicemail drop, which is obviously more productive. Do you have any thoughts on the subject? I didn't hear you mention anything about voicemails in your book, so I don't know if you're too passionate about it. So look, I come from an old school smile and dial world. There was no internet when I started selling. And then a matter of fact, I remember the internet was just coming out. I remember I got pro I got a computer and got prodigy. You know what I'm saying? I was like, you don't even know what that means. Don't worry. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, it's basically the very first way you got onto the internet in nineteen ninety-five or six or whatever, like, right? So so when I did it, people picked up. Like you could make 50 calls in a day and half of them would pick up. So, wow, and when they wow, didn't, wow, wow, wow. oh yeah, they'd pick up. Yeah, it, it worked. They picked up the phone. percent connection rate would be like, yeah. if, if I had that, we would be like, I'm just imagining if that was our connection rate, what our revenue would be. That'd be insane. Yeah. It's entirely different. I mean, look, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much it would change your revenue because not everybody needed it and, and you know, True. but it doesn't matter. But yeah, they picked up the phone. So and, and so when they didn't, you left a message. You didn't need to have speed dial or auto dial. Or, like they left a message. You left a message because you know that when I call you back, and because I built my own cadences. It's funny. I should have come up with outreach and much more. But it was just too far away from when I called and as an individual contributor because I actually built my own cadences and didn't even know they were cadences until sales off and outreach came like, oh yeah, I guess I did that. So I would literally build all these cadences myself. And not from an email perspective, but just a call perspective. So I would call you, talk to you. You're in the opportunity. I call you. I leave a message. Then I'd be like, okay, I left him a message on this day. And this is what I left him a message about. So in four days, call him back or call her back. So then I would, every morning I would come in and I'd look at my, my CRM and I'd be like, oh, I got these 22 calls to make. And it said, I left a message, left a message, didn't leave a message, new call, new call. You know what I'm saying? And I would just do it. So the answer to me, it would be always always leave a message because once you leave a message they know who you are so now you know it's not cold anymore it's it's slightly lukewarm but it's not cold they know you and if you tell them why or what problems you address you increase the chance they pick up or take it right you don't leave a message it's like you never called in my opinion it's a wasted call now if you lead it now to your point personalized personalized tells me why i called i know who you are etc if it's non-personalized i guess it would depend on on if, if it's personal around a problem, I'm not opposed sure. to it. If you can sure. speak to a specific problem you know they have, I'm not opposed to it. Long answer, I sorry. See. That's insightful. <laughs> I, I see what you're going for there. Perfect. And then this question too, I, I just a lot of curiosity questions. Kind of, They're not really related. <laughs> just got to jump fine. all over the place. So yeah. Bear with us, everybody. So the difference, and this was something that it just seems, <clears throat> it seems so common sense that it took me the longest time to understand this. The difference between 
how you conduct calls that that come inbound that are booked that way versus calls that are booked via outbound, whether that's cold email, cold calling, and how you treat those calls needs to be a it's an entirely different process. And mm-hmm. I was treating 100%. Outbound prospects, like they were inbound, and I was just completely yeah. wasting my time forever. Mm-hmm. I'm just burning money, literally. Mm-hmm. Speak to the difference, high level difference between the two, how you would conduct each process. So, inbound, I'm going to keep it simple. Inbound, exactly. they inbounded for a reason, they took an action for a reason. That action is a hint, something's going on. Okay, this is going to be sound so bad, but it's a perfect example. Every time I get a text or an email from a girl I used to date, I know she's broken up with a boyfriend. I I know. I like I literally know. I'm the consummate bachelor. I'd love to get married someday, but it, I don't see it happening. So, or again, I should say. But so I know that if I dated a girl, you know, six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and, and, and they call me or text me 90% of the time. I know exactly what's happened. Okay. Their life has changed. So if somebody has, if somebody is inbounding to you, I use the same logic. Something has happened. Something is going on. Yeah. So in an inbound, you treat that like why you treat that as what's going on. So your only objective for an inbound is to get them to explain to you why they're calling, what's going on in the organization today, what possessed them to want to have a conversation? What's happening that they think needs to change? And outbound, on the other hand, you've got to recognize that they don't, they're not paying attention at all. So outbound, you have to get them to recognize or associate themselves with a problem they may not have or may not realize they have. So that's the difference. You've got to get them to say, you know what? Yeah, I do have that problem. So outbound is I got to find a problem. Inbound is I got to get them to tell me what their problem is. Yeah. And that outbound is getting them to do that or or that whole process that you explained is much harder. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was like super high on myself. I would close like five big deals in a row. It was all inbound. Like there were referrals from partnerships and, I was like, wow, I'm really good at sales. And then I started doing outbound and I was like, yeah, dude, actually you just got gimmies like, or laydowns you might call them. Mm-hmm. Like, easy. Like you don't have to really be skilled to close a referral at all, even mm-hmm. in my opinion. So uh, yeah, it, it, that's a journey, figuring out how to sell outbound. And if you can do that, mm-hmm. then you are a good salesperson. Look, the key to look at outbound like fishing. Okay. You got to ask yourself, what type of fish am I looking for? Okay. Then if you ask what type of fish I'm looking for, where do those fish live? What do they eat? When do they eat it? Where do they like to swim? Right? So outbound, who am I targeting? What problems do they have? Where do those problems manifest? Where do those problems manifest themselves worse? Like what industries do those problems manifest themselves the worst? Who is more inclined to, if they have those problems, to want to fix them? How do they define those problems or how do they measure those problems? You got to know all of that. And once you know all of that, just like fishing, 
It's I'm going to use this lure this versus this lure. I'm going to fish it this time versus this time. I'm going to go to this spot versus this spot. And, and same thing with outbound. I'm going to ask these types of questions. I'm going to see if they connect with these types of problems. I'm going to challenge them on, on these type of issues. I'm going to ask if they're experiencing these types of things so I can get them to say yes to something. Yes, I losing money or yes, it takes too long for us to get a marketing campaign out or no, we aren't making our, our revenue number or yes, our manufacturing break rate or, or like another word I'm looking for, but we'll call break rate is above, you know, 0.3%. Okay. I get you to say yes to any of that. I'm on my way. So all I'm trying to look for in outbound is a yes. Yes. I have some type of problem that I can grab onto. Right. And salespeople don't. They're too focused on the product. Look, I got water. Without water interests you. Oh, you don't like 19? I got a 12 ounce. Or or you don't like yeah, the name yeah. of it? Or I have another. It's this. And what I'm trying to say is, no, no, no. I want you to say yes to a problem. So here's another way of doing this. You go to someone who says they're happily married. I'll say, well, have you ever had to sleep on the couch? Yeah, actually, I have. How often? Not that often. Okay, what's well, not that often? Maybe once or twice a year. When's the last time you had to do it? A month ago. Two years ago, when you first got married, or five years ago, did you ever sleep on the couch? No. So something's changing. I got you. See what I did right there? I fucking got you. Yeah, yeah. Right? I, I got you to say yes to sleep on the couch. I got you to say yes that you didn't sleep on the couch in the past. So whether or not you need my service of a therapist or whatever I'm trying to sell here is not the point. The point is I now have you thinking that something may not be right and it's worth an exploration. That's outbound. Well, man, Keenan, I really appreciate you being here today and just want to acknowledge and thank you for your work, your sales Bible manifesto that you've put together for the, the benefit of all of us. So, so and I'm, I'm reading it again right now, and I will probably read it every year. It's great. Awesome. I love and it. Whether, whether you're still in sales or not, I think it's a, a good book for life because sales is life. Life is sales. It can very much be viewed through that lens. It's an important work, your book. So yeah. So you, you you didn't read it at first, and then you read it later. Why why did you delay? And why? I and- wish I read it two years ago, man. I I wish. <laughs> why did I delay? I don't have a good answer to that. I don't. I I, I thought I was set. I thought I was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was, and I just paged through it at the time, and and I just you know like you're cocky. See if there's anything I need in there, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, the prospecting section really, really spoke to me at that time. It helps me out. And I, mm-hmm. I remember like after reading that part of the book and email, the, e- the, the emails I, that you go over in there, like the difference between a good one and a bad one, all that sort of stuff. I remember getting into this like great flow session afterwards and just like writing out some really good copy. And I had a lot <laughs> of fun with that. I, I still remember being on the couch doing that two years ago after reading that section of the book. But should have read the whole thing. Right, I well, would have. Uh, you have now. Have lost so good for deals. you. Ah, there you go. Yeah. So, but onward and upward. Onward and upward. So, I got Bam. two questions left for you, man. Yeah. Yeah. One of them is along the li- same lines of you know salesperson type conversation, and then the the last one is a sales org conversation. Mm-hmm. We kind of ran out of time there, so but I still want to ask one question about that. No, that's fine. That's so fine. My first question is what are like the two golden rules, two or three, one, two or three even, that come to mind as it pertains to being a great salesperson? What are some of those golden rules? How would you 
being a, okay. I think the first one is being able to ask really good questions. It's being able to diagnose. We'll call that the skill. Learning to diagnose. That is an absolute, that is, is a must. You must learn to diagnose. And it's really not something we're taught very often. So we're taught it all. Listening. It does. It requires listening, but also requires thinking. See, diagnosing isn't just asking questions. Diagnosing is asking a question and then based on the answer, processing very quickly to then know what question to ask next, right? So I don't know anything about race cars, but if a, if a driver comes in and says, it's not, it, I'm just missing the acceleration, right? The acceleration is not there. The acceleration is not there. A really good diagnoser is going to know what question to ask first, Right. And they're going to say, well, okay, well, what do you mean when it's, what happens when you press the acceleration? And that person's going to answer. And based on that answer, that technician is going to be quickly processing. Could be this, could be this, could be this, not this, not this, not this. Do you see what I'm saying? And then from there, he's going to say, okay, well, what, okay. So it could be this, this, and this. I'm going to go there quick. All right. So after that happens, what happens here? Did, did you feel this? Does this happen? And they're literally processing, asking, processing, asking. They're listening as well. But it's the processing that goes in between that makes you the best diagnosis. Anybody can ask questions and ask good questions, but not if you're not critically thinking in between. Got to know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's the hardest part for most people. A, a deep understanding of the problem. The, yes, the set, yes. The set of problems that your ICP has. Yes. So that's the next one is, is you gotta, you got to be an expert in the people you sell to. You've yeah. just got to be an expert in the people you sell to. Make them. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say those are the two biggest. And then, yeah, those are two biggest. Cool. And then same question, but for like a sales leader, what are those one, two or three golden rules of a career? Ooh. And I, I was kind of thinking of phrasing the question this way, like sales leader or sales coach. Would you use that? Can we use those interchangeably? Because a great sales I don't leader think so. is, is a coach. Oh, no. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Mm. So and here now. Look, a leader can be a coach and a coach can be a leader, but you can be a coach without being a leader, right? And you can be a leader without being a coach, okay? Yeah. So, so to me, the coaching aspect is someone who's highly invested in my day-to-day in my -day activities and behaviors and at the end of the day, the performance, right? So I can coach, I'm going to go out and coach you on how to play basketball and I'm going to spend time observing you I'm going to spend time assessing your behaviors. I'm going to attach those behaviors to the desired outcomes that you have, that you've stated you have. I'm going to monitor that with you. I'm going to provide a prescription on what to do different. You know what I'm saying? So, so a leader can be a coach and a coach can be a leader, but they're not necessarily interchangeable. Leader, on the other hand, is I'm going to set direction. I'm going to provide support. I'm going to if asked, I will coach, but I don't necessarily have to coach. I'm going to set direction. I'm going to set culture. I'm going to create accountability. I'm going to, you know, create ownership. So here's a good way of looking at it. What's his name? Dallas Mavericks. What's that cat's name again? Mark Cuban. Mark, yeah. I don't know him, but I'm going to assume he's a great leader. Mm -hmm. You don't want him coaching anybody on that basketball team. Sure. You do I not. See. Yeah. Now, he, he may coach some of the people that work directly for him, but even in that case, he may realize he's not a good coach. And so he hires really, really smart people who don't need a lot of coaching or hires someone to coach them for him. But he's a great leader. He sets that direction and, and he sets the vision and the strategy and blah, blah, blah. But he's a horrible coach. Yep. Yep. And hiring people that don't need coaching, that's a whole conversation outside of the scope of this. But I, mm -hmm. I resonated with that. Yeah, that's important. 
to, to make those kinds of hires within your organization. Now, <laughs> as for the question, golden rules of a sales leader. Oh, I think, I, I think first and foremost, the leader has to set a, a, okay, set a vision, golden rule, be able to set a vision or direction that everybody can get behind, right? So what are we, what are we fighting for? Okay. What are we going for? What are we fighting for? Second one is empowerment. Empower the people to do their job, make people feel that they're part of the process, make people feel like they're part, that they have an intricate role in the vision. Like what are we fighting for? And then empower people to believe that, not to believe, but, but are contributing to that, right? People got to feel that my actions are leading to this vision that I signed up for. And then I guess the third one would be culture. You got, you got to build a culture where everybody feels they're successful, that it's a productive culture, that it's a positive one that creates its own momentum, its own identity, its own, uh, I don't even know the word, but yeah. So I would say ownership, vision, and in, in direction, and then culture. Dude, baller answer. That that was a that was that could be a whole podcast, but man, <laughs> we will leave it here. Thank you for being here again, Keenan. Keenan on on LinkedIn. Couldn't find you on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, it's Keenan. Yeah, it's Keenan underscore Red Plaid. I wasn't able to get Keenan by itself. I so gotcha. well, Keenan underscore Red Plaid. Right. No, I do a lot on Instagram. Oh, mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yep. Cool. Yeah. I guess it's a little more varied. It's a little more varied. Some peek into my personal life, stuff on sales, stuff on, you know, raising kids or, you know, success, but no, it's on there. Yeah. Well, most importantly, get the book gap selling on Amazon, audible, wherever. Keenan, thanks for being here. My pleasure, baby. My pleasure. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of Building Freedom. My only hope for this podcast, my aim is that this inspires you to build a freer, fuller life, one where you're not enslaved by a business, whether that be your business or any other business, whether you're a business owner or self-employed. The aim of this show is to help you build a freer, fuller life. And there are many ways to do that. And that's what we showcase on this show each week. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, be well.